0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be bouncing all over the place this morning, and we're really going to look at the broad scope again. If you remember last week, we began our little three-week sermon series on the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Last week, we examined the scriptures and what it meant for Old Testament Israel in the past to be longing for and awaiting and hoping their Messiah would come. What was it like for them? There were prophecies and they were ready for the Messiah, but the Messiah was coming in their mind in a way that was different than God's timetable and God's manner and God's purpose. We said last week that in their utter hopelessness, the doorway to hope was created. Utter hopelessness is the doorway to hope. And this morning I want to look at Christmas present in the time of Jesus, as if he were born yesterday, as if we just heard the news in the present, the very first Christmas, and see the hope that was born in the person of Jesus Christ. But we're going to see it not in the same way that we would think hope would be born. Many were expecting hope to come in a political ruler, but that's not the way that Jesus was going to come If there is one word that we absolutely cannot use to describe the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, it would be the word ideal. The birth of Jesus Christ was filled with a tumultuous time, a government that was crazy, prophecies that seemed they had no chance of ever being fulfilled, hopeless situations, and in the midst of it, Jesus is born. So we're just going to look this morning at two main points. Number one, we're going to look at the background of the hope that came in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the background for hope, and then we're going to see the result of hope. The background of hope. We're going to set the stage, and we're going to do that a little bit more in a narrative fashion. We're not going to dive into one specific passage like we normally do. We're going to look at several different passages and set the stage for the background of the coming of Jesus Christ, the, the moment that he showed up on the scene And then we're going to see what happens because of his coming. The result of the hope that came in Jesus Christ. First, the background for the hope. Just three main things that we're going to look at for the background. We're going to look at the government, first of all. The the political backdrop that Jesus was being dropped into. Matthew chapter 2, we already heard it read about Herod, King Herod, a wicked man. We already saw his conniving that he wanted to come and worship the baby who was being born along with the Magi. But it wasn't true. He was lying and the angel told the Magi that. But if you go down to verse 16, we read of what Herod is maybe most known for as far as the nativity is concerned. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Herod is a wicked man. When we show up to the opening of the gospel records, Herod is in power. We know that Rome is controlling Israel. Rome has taken over by conquering Greece and they are controlling Israel. But when Rome would conquer a country, Rome would go in and would say, we want you to like us. And so if we can take you over and keep your established government, keep your religion, keep whatever you want, We want you to like us. Just two things. Number one, don't have any insurrection against us. And number two, pay your taxes. If you do that, you can be happy. We will rule you from Rome. We'll send a couple people in just to keep the peace, most notably uh, Pontius Pilate that you know of. But we'll also have these governors that were in place. We'll leave them as governors Israelite governors, but they'll be our puppets and we'll pay them off and they'll do exactly what we're asking them to do. But we want you to think that you have some sense of autonomy. That's where Herod shows up, paid off by the Romans, a puppet of Rome, not even Jewish through and through. He's actually from an Idumean descent, so he's not even a Jewish man, but he tries to keep all the Jewish festivals and keep the religion so that he makes his Jewish citizens happy and he keeps Rome happy. In doing that, he becomes one of the most fascinating people in all of biblical history and one of the most wicked that we ever meet. Just a couple examples of his wickedness. He had 10 wives, and from his 10 wives, he had a myriad of sons. And he always thought that his sons were conspiring against him to take his throne. And so he would kill them just because he was afraid that they might take over the throne. Even when he died, he split up his kingdom. He said, no one is worthy to rule all of Israel as I did. So I'm going to split it up into four parts. And that's where we get Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, the Tetrarch, all these different Herods. Herod just means king. All these different people that were established as king. He was so prideful that he said, you know what? When I die, I want four people to take over because no one man could ever do the job that I did. He killed all of his family members left and right continually, even his parents, even his grandparents, so much so that news traveled to Rome and Caesar Augustus heard of this. And Caesar Augustus said in a very cool play on words, he said this, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. It's a play on words for two reasons. Number one, it's a play on words in the Greek because pig and son are almost identical words in the Greek. So it's a little... Um, fun little play on words but number two he's playing with the fact that Herod wouldn't kill a pig an unclean animal even though he didn't believe in the Jewish religion even though he didn't follow the Jewish customs because he didn't care about them he would do it to keep the peace keep his job make the money that he wanted to make and so he would be fine killing his sons and his daughters but he wouldn't kill any pigs because that would be killing an unclean animal and eating an unclean animal he wouldn't do that He's an old man here in Matthew chapter 2. He's actually going to die, we are told, in 4 B.C. So that puts Jesus' birth somewhere around 5 or 6 B.C. And as he knows he's about to die, he said to his leaders, I know that no one in all of Israel will mourn my death. He knew he was a wicked man and a hated man. He said, I know no one will mourn my death. So this is what he did. He rounded up hundreds and hundreds of... Of Jewish rabbis synagogue leaders notable Jewish men and he rounded them all up and he put them into an amphitheater and he locked the amphitheater and he gave his soldiers charge over them and said the moment that you hear that I have died kill all of these men so that Israel will have a reason to mourn he knew that no one was going to mourn for his death and I just love the scene all of these men are in this amphitheater fearing for their lives all of these soldiers are surrounding them with the doors locked with their shields and their um, swords and their spears out, ready to kill these men. And a herald comes and says, Herod has died. And they take their swords out and they start to walk over and kill these men. And then they realize, wait a second, if he's died, we don't have to follow his orders anymore. So they open the doors and let the people go and thought that would be a dumb waste of life. Who cares about that? This was just Herod being insane. He was a sick man. He was a despicable evil man and yet that is the backdrop he is the president if you will he is the ruler the government and the political authority in power at the time that jesus shows up and because he is so afraid that somebody is going to take his position when he hears that a a baby has been born who is the king of the jews He ends up going to Bethlehem, killing all of the male babies two years old and under. You know, sometimes I hear about Stephen being the first martyr um, in Acts when he was stoned. The first man to die because of his association with Jesus Christ. I think Jesus could be a martyr as well. I think he could be the first martyr, rightfully so. Died doing the will of the Father. Died for the message that he proclaimed in the gospel. But I think we could go even further back. I think these little babies are the first martyrs that we see in the New Testament. The first first souls that are destroyed because of their association with Jesus. Just because they were born at the same time that Jesus was born. They're killed. How could there be any hope? How can any hope come in the midst of this disastrous wickedness? There's evil in this scene and there's evil in our world. Just look at what happened yesterday with the two policemen who were brutally executed in New York City. Wickedness. This is evil. There are atrocities going all over the world, and people are rejoicing over that. Criminals and wicked, evil men are saying, look at what I've been able to do. I've been able to kill policemen, and they deserve it. And you Just look at that, and your heart and your soul mourn. This is evil. There was true wickedness and true evil happening in Jesus' day, too. And yet, in the midst of it, hope is born. In the midst of political madness and governmental evil, the Prince of Peace comes. No, his kingdom is not of this world, but even the most foul rulers of this world can be saved through the message that is proclaimed through Jesus, can be turned and transformed. And the ultimate hope is that if they are not, justice will come, evil will be destroyed. And in the midst of political upheaval and madness and evil and wickedness, Jesus is born in a backdrop that is filled with hopelessness. Secondly, the forerunner's birth. Let's look at the forerunner's birth. We we have Herod, we have a political governmental background. We also have a background of a prophecy that was made actually, three different prophecies in the Old Testament that were made about the forerunner to the Messiah. There had to be somebody who would come as a herald announcing that the Messiah was on his way. So how is that going to work? How is that going to come about? Turn to Luke chapter 1. You know this story, and we looked at some of it this morning in Family Bible Hour. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, so we have the backdrop of Herod, the king of Judea. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So the stage is set for the people that God is going to use to bring about the birth of the forerunner. Let's look at how amazing John the Baptist's birth truly is. First, you have a man named Zacharias who is a priest. And he is a priest, in verse 5, of the division of Abijah. He's of the division of Abijah. In the service of the temple, um, there were people groups in the Levites that were divided into 24 different divisions. So Abijah's division was called, and that division has now been given the permission and authority and orders to do the work in the temple that Zacharias is going to do. So if he had been in any other division, he would not have been in the place that he was. So awesome luck, number one, or we would know it as providence, that God picks the division of Abijah, that Zacharias is in the division of Abijah. There are about 18,000 priests serving in the temple at this time during festivals. And here, He is going to be chosen, and if you go down verse 8, now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, so he had to be in the right division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot. This is another good luck, um, that he received the choosing by lot. And here's the interesting thing. Since there were over 18,000 priests that would be in this lot choosing, Um, You rarely ever got a chance to do this. Uh, Many priests went their entire lifetime without being able to go into the temple and do what Zacharias is about to do. And then if you had done that once in your lifetime, you were never able to be back in the pool to do it again. Your lot was taken away. So Zacharias has never done this. He's in his old age as well, and he's never done this before. And he's probably sad that he hasn't done it, wanting to do it. And now he knows the reason why he's never done it before. Because on this day, he will be chosen by lot, and he must go into the temple, and he will be given the news that his son will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And then of all the people that God chooses to use to carry the forerunner, he uses a woman who the description is, verse 7, she is barren, that's strike one, and she's advanced in years, she's already gone through menopause, so we'll say that's pretty much strike three. So strike one, straight to strike three, this is bad news if you're wanting to have a child. And yet, as Gabriel's going to say to Mary, with God all things are possible. In the midst of a hopeless situation, barrenness back then, as you know, equaled cursedness, to the Jewish people. If you were barren, you had done something wrong that God would not open your womb. Now we know that is absolutely unbiblical, but they believe that you must be being cursed by God. It was a stigma to be somebody who is barren. Why did God choose Elizabeth? Why did God wait? Why did God use Zacharias in the way that he did in the timetable and all of these providential sequences had to happen so that he could be the person appointed to go in, the one person that year to go in to the temple and offer the incense. Well, when God does one thing, he's doing a million things. So I can't tell you all of the reasons why God chose Zacharias and Elizabeth. But one of the reasons why is because how much more of a hopeless situation can you get if you're wanting to have a child than being barren and advanced in years? And God says... In the midst of your hopelessness to have a child, I'm going to bring hope. I'm going to give you a child. And in that, there's a foreshadowing as he is the forerunner. Think about this. John the Baptist, before he is even conceived, is forerunning the Messiah. He is imaging what the Messiah is going to bring in the announcement of his birth. Hopelessness equals the doorway to hope. And now you, in your hopeless situation, will have a child. And guess what? Jesus is going to do the same thing to anybody who would admit their bankruptcy in Christ and say, I have nothing to offer you. I need you and you alone. Hopelessness is the doorway to hope. And here, Elizabeth, completely hopeless, is given a child. And you know the reaction. You know, Zacharias doesn't believe it. You know, he is shut up for the time. And then uh, John the Baptist is born. His name will be John. You know the rest of the story. But what an amazing picture of the hope that would be offered in Jesus in the midst of painful circumstances. The stigma of never being able to have a child. Wanting, aching, longing. And God says all things are possible. All things are possible. It's also an amazing picture of God speaking again. This is the opening of the New Testament. This is opening of the New Testament time. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of utter silence, complete silence where God is not speaking anymore. And people are wondering, has God been silent forever with us? Is he going to stop speaking? Has he left us? Has he forgotten about us? All the promises that he made to us about hope and peace. Is he done? Is he done with us? In fact, the last time that we saw Gabriel speaking to somebody, it was to Daniel in 539 B.C. So the last time the angel Gabriel had shown up was 539 B.C. speaking to Daniel. And here he shows up again to say, you know what, God's not done speaking. And in fact, God is so not done speaking that he will speak to us in the word, his incarnate son, who will speak on my behalf. So we've seen the political background. We see the forerunner's birth, the background to this forerunner being born. And let's just jump straight to the Messiah. Number three, the Messiah's birth. Go over just a little bit in Luke chapter one. Mary, you know, this story, Mary is told that she is going to conceive and give birth. We looked at this in family Bible hour, Drop down to verse 30, chapter one, verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son You shall name him Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Amazing truth of the Messiah. Mary asks and she doesn't ask in unbelief because we know it's the angel Gabriel's response to Zacharias was different than his response to Mary. She just asks, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How does this work if I have not known a man? And the angel says... The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she was called barren is now in her sixth month because nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary responds, behold, the slave of the Lord may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary is given the news, you are going to bear this son. She's told you're going to bear it apart from Joseph, who she she is betrothed to. And she does something interesting. Verse 39, now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah. This is a city in the hill country of Judah, so it's down south. She leaves, she's living in Nazareth. She leaves and goes down south to the city where Elizabeth is and she does it in a hurry. Once she hears the announcement that she's going to bear a child, she leaves. Once she hears that Elizabeth is already bearing a child, she leaves. The reason why we need to know this is because we don't see Mary coming back to Joseph until she's probably showing. Let me let me show this to you. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. Mary's visited. Luke chapter 1, verse 39, Mary leaves. So she is given this announcement. Um, the, The conception is going to happen. And then in verse 56, it says that Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned home. So with the travel time in between going and coming and the three months that she stayed with Elizabeth and it's about three months. So let's say it's about four months when you put it all together that she hasn't been home and she shows up on the scene and Joseph sees his betrothed. And you know, betrothed means married in every respect. There are only two things that were different about actually being married than being betrothed. Number one, you lived with your family while you were betrothed. And number two, when you Um, were betrothed, you were not allowed to be involved in any sexual relations. So in every other capacity, you were married as married could be, except for the fact that you are still living with your parents and you're not allowed to be involved in any sexual relations. I do this for several reasons, but the bottom line is to annul a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. It was a legal binding thing. It wasn't like our engagement period in an American Western culture. So Joseph sees his betrothed, who has promised to be faithful. You were not allowed to be betrothed less than a month and more than a year. So you had to be betrothed somewhere in that period of time. One of the main reasons was to make sure that you were faithful, that you were faithful to each other and moral and and not involved in immorality. And here comes Mary. I don't know what I would have thought. If I were Joseph, Joseph loves Mary. Joseph would never have thought that Mary would ever have been unfaithful to him. And so my first thought is, wow, you ate a lot of food. And for some reason, it's not going to your hips like it normally does. It's going straight to your stomach. Like, what is this about? And then Mary says, no, 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 I'm pregnant. What would Joseph have thought? Well, we know what he ultimately thought because he's going to put her away secretly. Why is that? Because if she is found out to have been unfaithful and sexually involved with somebody else, she has committed adultery according to the betrothal. And an adulterer would be stoned. If anybody found out that she had been unfaithful, she would rightfully be killed. Joseph loves Mary and doesn't want her to be killed, but he says she's been unfaithful. Why would you do this to me? How could you do this to me? And then she gives the best excuse ever invented. Um, God did this to me. It wasn't It wasn't anybody. It was it was God. Just trust me on this one. I want to know how many other Jewish girls in that time period tried that excuse. Remember what happened to Mary? Happened to me too. He realizes she's pregnant, and he realizes her excuse is one of the dumbest excuses ever why won't you just speak the truth chuck swindoll says it this way i love this he he tries to get inside the mind of joseph and he says this um, in joseph's mind after describing a most unusual story mary revealed that she was pregnant the words hit my chest like a boulder I sat stunned as she continued with a preposterous, blasphemous story about conceiving the Messiah and the invisible God behaving in a manner that seemed to me like the deviant gods of Rome. A wave of questions flooded my mind. Who was the father? Was Mary taken advantage of or did she consent? How could I have been so wrong about someone I knew so well? Is she just utterly insane? Is she in love with him? Does she not love me? Why would she do this? I looked across the table at Mary to find her gazing at me with an obvious compassion which outraged me. Was her delusion so complete as to believe what she said? Or worse, her deceit so profound as to feign concern for the lives she destroyed. The room began to spin and I felt my stomach rebel. I had to get outside. I nearly tore the door off its hinges, ran into the night and didn't stop until I stood on the ridge outside Nazareth. Exhausted, I sank to my knees, then sat for hours in the darkness, staring across the plain and into the night sky. When I was a child, I had found comfort in the vast expanse of stars, a symbol of God's power and permanence and unchangeable character. So I found the appearance of a new light, a very bright dot high above the horizon, a little unsettling. But my anguish would allow no other thoughts for very long before the utter absurdity of my circumstances overtook me. Each time I recovered, a new dimension of this tragedy invaded my mind and brought with it another spasm of sobs. What would he do with Mary? That's why the angel had to come. Turn back over to Matthew chapter 1. The angel had to come because Joseph was going to put her away. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Mary was speaking the truth. This is of the Lord. I'm sure in that moment, there had to have been peace in his heart. Okay, praise the Lord she wasn't lying. She is true. She's speaking the truth. But at the same time, questions start coming up. What is this going to look like to everyone else? In the time period... If Joseph doesn't stone his unfaithful betrothed, he is seen with disgrace. In fact, if he wanted to divorce her and send her away, the only way that you were able to do that in Jewish law at that time was if you knew that that child was not yours. You could not be involved in immorality, conceive a child and say, now I don't want to be married to you. You could... If this child was from another man, Joseph could say, I'm going to divorce you and send you away because that's not my child. Stay with the other man. So for Joseph to say, I will stay with you. He is bearing the reproach of everybody saying, since he's not divorcing her, he must have committed immorality with her. They didn't wait in the betrothal period. And he bears the stigma. She had had it already. She's showing. And now he's saying, you know what, I'm going to marry her. And so to the onlooking world, they look at that and they say, well, this must be their child. They had a child out of wedlock. They couldn't wait. They are immoral, unfaithful to their covenants to each other. Joseph voluntarily subjected himself to any misunderstanding the community would have, about Mary's pregnancy and we see this throughout Jesus's life we see this at the very beginning and we've talked about this I think we talked about this last year at the very very beginning when there is no room for them in the inn we've talked about that word "inn" is better translated guest room it's the word "cataluma." it's used in Luke chapter 22 verse 11 to refer to the guest room where Jesus wants to eat the Passover meal a guest room. It's a house of somebody that we know and we're going to use their guest room. It's it's not a a hotel. In fact, if Luke wanted to use the word for hotel, he would have used the same word that he used in Luke chapter 10, verse 34. That is not Cataluma. It's a different word and it's the word used in the passage of the Good Samaritan where the Good Samaritan takes uh, the individual who has been beat up and left for dead and takes him to an inn and pays money to the innkeeper to leave him there. So if Luke wanted to describe a hotel, he could have. But I don't think this is what happened. I don't think this was a hotel. I don't think there was no room for them in the hotel. And we always talk about the hustle and bustle of leaving Nazareth and going back to Bethlehem. And there are so many people because of the census. And so there's no way that they could get a spot in a hotel room. I think if you actually read it for what it's saying and read it with the understanding of the stigma that was associated with this pregnancy... There was no room in the guest home, maybe even the home that Joseph grew up in, because he's going back to his hometown. Maybe great-grandpa still owns the home that his father owned, and he's going back to hang out, maybe a place that they vacationed many years before. And they go there, and he says, can we please stay here? And one of two options happens. They either look and they say, no, Joseph, you can't stay with us. You have not divorced this woman, who rightfully should be stoned, you are committing injustice to let her live when she should be stoned for her actions with sleeping with another man. And because of your um, lack of commitment to the law of God, you can't be in here. Or, number two, Joseph, you and Mary have been involved in a scandal of being involved sexually before your marriage in a betrothal time when you were supposed to stay pure. Either way, I believe the family looks at them and says, I'm sorry. We can't condone your deviant behavior by letting you stay here. Just think about fiddler on the roof. Just think about the the culture. If you married a Gentile person, we're going to have a funeral for you. It's that bad. The stigma was voluntarily borne by Joseph. And again, what a beautiful picture. Joseph is a picture of what Jesus would do his entire life and his death. He would bear a stigma for sins that he didn't commit. He took our sins. He bore the punishment for sins as if he had committed them when he never did. Just as Joseph bore the stigma and the wrath for sins that he never committed. No one had committed. It was a, a lack of understanding the truth that God had spoken through the angel. What a beautiful foreshadowing of the hope in the midst of chaotic, stressful, hopeless circumstances, whether it's the government, whether it's the the forerunner's birth and being barren, whether it's the stigma of sin and this whole scandal that's going on, Jesus says, I'm coming to undo all of this and make it all right. There are so many other hope-filled stories wrapped up in the first Christmas. For instance, the wise men that we sang about, I love the wise men. Just look at the wise men. They believed in the Messiah when they are Gentiles from a a nation that hates Yahweh, that they believe. What a picture of the truth that the Messiah would come for all the nations, even as Simeon would say, a light to the Gentiles. The Messiah was going to be born as one who would come, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. What about the hope-filled story that the shepherds are the first to receive the news? These poor, unclean men who were not able to enter into the temple area because they were unclean, because they're dealing with nasty sheep and births and deaths and everything that goes along with being a shepherd. They're, They're considered unclean. And those are the people, lowly, humble, unclean men, that God says, I'm speaking to you first. Those are the people God came for, not the people who say, I don't need any help. He came for the people that need the help. A doctor doesn't visit those that are healthy. The doctor visits those who are sick. All these truths point to the hope that is found in the person of Jesus. When Jesus was born, we had hope that God would speak again and would not leave us in the dark. When Jesus was born, we had hope that all the promises God made would come true. What God did when he sent his son into the world is an absolute guarantee that he will do everything that he's ever promised to do. He had promised to bring the Messiah. He had promised the way that the Messiah would be born. It happened exactly the way that God prophesied that it would happen. And so we have an absolute guarantee that everything God has ever promised to do will come true. When Jesus was born, we had hope that the Lamb of God would once and for all take away our sin. When Jesus was born, we had hope of our own second birth. As he is born, our second birth is now possible And when Jesus was born, everything changed. That's why the angels cry out, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's good news of great joy. They all sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's what we sang already. Gloria in excelsis Deo or as my daughter likes to say, in Chelsea's Deo. She she thinks it's a song about her. What is the result of the hope that Jesus brought? We've seen the background just setting the stage. Jesus comes in the middle of a bleak, dark time, in the middle of hopeless situations and circumstances. What is the result? In a word, the result of the hope is joy. The result of the hope of Jesus being born is joy. This is why we love Christmas, Even non-believers love Christmas because it's a time to be happy and joyful. We love celebrating. That's why C.S. Lewis invented the curse in Narnia as a curse of always being winter and never being able to celebrate Christmas. We love joy-filled celebrations. And in a time period when there was no reason to celebrate, the angels burst onto the scene. Turn one more time to Luke chapter 2. We'll end here. Luke chapter 2. Passage made famous by Linus in Charlie Brown Christmas. I should have had him read it because his voice is night and day better than mine. But listen to the angels' story. Listen to their message. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Because today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. There are three main reasons for joy. Three results of the hope of Jesus being born just in the announcement that the angels are making. Number one reason for joy, God's glory is breaking forth. Verse nine, an angel of the Lord suddenly appears and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of God comes with the angel shining around the shepherds and they're afraid. Why? Because God's glory is his holiness on display for us to see. And when you stand in the presence of holiness as a sinner, of course you're going to be terrified. Holiness has every right to destroy and obliterate unholy people. And the shepherds are frightened, but the angel says, don't be afraid because the news that I'm bringing, the very reason that you're afraid, the news that I'm bringing will undo that. You're afraid because you're a sinner. You're afraid because you cannot stand in the presence of holiness. And I'm bringing you news that tells you someone is going to come in glory, someone is going to pay the price for your sins that would destroy you in the presence of holiness, but now you can stand free, forgiven. The news that I've come to offer you is news that undoes your terrible frightenedness. Now you can stand. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God's glory is breaking forth, even at the end. Glory to God in the highest. Verse 14. Glory to God. Everything that's happening now and forevermore is bringing God glory. And this is good news because as his glory breaks on the scene and we see and savor who Jesus Christ is for us in God, we can see and savor and be satisfied in the glory of God. That's what our souls were made to be satisfied by. Now we can have ultimate satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Glorifying him. When we do that, we enjoy him. We enjoy everything that he has created for us to enjoy. And now we have the possibility of doing that because his glory is breaking forth. Number two, second reason for joy. The result of this hope is that God's goodness is being proclaimed. God's goodness is being proclaimed in verse 10. This is good news. This is the gospel. You're afraid, shepherds, because as God shows up on the scene, normally God would show up in holiness to judge unholy people. But guess what? He's coming not to judge you, but to save you. This is good news. And the shepherds only get just a kernel of this good news. They hear it. They don't really get to experience all of it, but they hear it, and they're told about it, and they're wondering about it, and it just spreads these shepherds get a tiny little glimpse of the fullness of how amazing this news truly is. They don't even fully understand it until Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. I always like to picture this scene. This scene for me is the shepherds are going, this is amazing, but we don't know why. Like something's happening here and we're not fully aware of what's going on. It's like when I go to Costco and, and there's a there's, they have those little... um, um when they, when they cut up all those little taste testing things, like here's, here's a little bit, you know, just a tiny. And you take, that's like the best product that they've ever made, right? That's the one. You buy a thousand boxes of it. You eat it, give me a thousand. And you start eating it, and you're like, that t- doesn't taste anything like that other thing. False advertising. These, these little tiny samples are terrible. Not so here. This little tiny sample of the glory of God and the goodness of God showing up. Shepherds go, something amazing is happening. Let's go go and see. Let's get the full picture. There's so much joy because God's goodness is being displayed in the good news. It's being proclaimed for the whole world, for all the people. Finally, number three, the reason that we have joy is because God is meeting our greatest need. God is meeting our greatest need. Verse 11, today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. Shepherds might have said, well, we would really like another shepherd. (laughs) We're short on hands here. That would have been good news. Or, hey, business is going to boom in the next couple weeks. Great news. For unto you is born this day a Savior. Yay! Wait, what is that? Why do we need that? What's going on? In this moment, God is meeting the greatest need that we ever ever have had we didn't even know it the majority of israel didn't even know this was the need remember they thought their greatest need was political freedom their oppressors being destroyed but here god says i'm going to meet the greatest need that you have and in doing it god sends his son our savior last week the people thought their greatest need was for something entirely different This week, God says, no, your greatest need is a Savior, and I've provided him. In the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of a joyless environment, angels are singing, shepherds are smiling. Everybody's wondering, what's going on? Hope is born. What would it have been like the night before Jesus was born? The night before Christmas? I always think about that from... The pithy little kids' book. But I enjoy a little different version of that and a song that I want you guys to listen to and to read the words. Imagining, thinking through the hopelessness that had been existing for years and years, hundreds of years. Long awaited hope that now has broken in in a way that no one would have expected but in a way that met the need that we had the most. Let's listen to this song.
1: It was the night before Christmas And all through the world Everything looked like business As you you were Shepherds sat on a hillside Looking up at the stars While the world fell asleep Unaware just how deep Was the darkness the night before Christmas And the night before Christmas It seemed to be just a night But the wind blew like something was coming and like children with secrets That their birth seem to tell The seed is danced in the breeze While all of nature, it seems Held its breath on the night before Christmas the baby's first cry, and on the night before Christmas, Mary lay down to rest, while Joseph he paced the floor praying. In an everyday stable, in an everyday town, in the hours to come, God would wrap himself up and come down. The night before Christmas
0: thank you so much for Christmas